Hello and welcome to OECD On The Level. I'm Bill Below. Today we are talking with Faisal Maru, Head of Strategic Management and Coordination in the Executive Director's Office at the OECD, and Filippo Cavassini, Policy Specialist and Advisor in the Regulatory Policy Division of the OECD. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. We'll be discussing behavioral economics, or behavioral insights as it's known, or simply BI. We may be the rational animal, but how rational are we really? We accept software updates without reading the fine print. We give our personal information to unknown entities. We undertake heroic acts against all odds. We are optimistic when we should be cautious and pessimistic when we should be sanguine. We occasionally buy things we don't really need. We eat fatty foods, and some of us even still smoke. We fail to systematically pursue our direct self-interest, erring at times on the side of altruistic cooperation. We don't save enough for the future. We confuse the nominal and real value of money. We believe an overheated economy will never crash, and when it does, we lose confidence for too long that better times will return. It's easy to see why neoclassical economists prefer a pared-down paradigm of human motivation largely free of the messiness of human psychology. Human rationality is bounded, as some politely put it. Yet one of the truly intriguing insights of the behavioral sciences is that although we frequently act irrationally, we tend to do so in predictable ways. Since the 1970s, this insight has been a central tenet of the new field of behavioral economics, beginning with the work of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Faisal, uh, Filippo, let me ask you both. Does the advent of behavioral economics spell extinction for the species Homo economicus, that rational economic actor and master maximizer of utility? And my follow-up question is, why are psychologists and cognitive scientists winning the Nobel Prize in economics, most recently Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler, in 2002 and 2017, respectively? Thank you, Bill, uh, for those easy questions. Um, But I think the real, I mean, for your first question, the real answer or the real question actually should be, um, did Homo economicus ever actually exist in the first place? Um, Or was this, uh, was this, you know, a nice way of being able to practice a a certain science and, uh, and get some kind of understanding of the world as a whole? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in a sense, homo economicus is a bit of simplification. It's a toy, it's a model. Uh, Economists love models. Uh, And I think it works when the model fits as much as possible reality. Now, I think we have come to realize, and through the work of Richard Thaler, Daniel Kahneman, Carl Sunstein, Richard Tversky, that in fact, for certain things, that model doesn't fit. And therefore, we have to think of a different model, of a different idea of rationality. And here is where I think behavioral economics has brought great insights. And that's exactly why um, you have psychologists or cognitive scientists, as you said, uh, winning the Nobel Prize in economics is because of there has been, um, you know, this injection of some of the other sciences and some of the other learnings into economics, which is benefiting in lots of different ways um, across the world. And that has to be the main reason why. And I think it also comes to the realization that uh, rationality is also the result, or this new idea of rationality is also the result of interactions with the environment where people operate. Things about social norms uh, and how, in fact, they affect the way in which we behave 
and, uh, and react and think and make choices. All these come into play in behavioral economics and in particular in behavioral insights. Uh, in other words, the application of these insights from different disciplines, not only economics, but of course, psychology, neurosciences, uh, behavioral theory, decision-making theory, into the design of uh, actions and interventions, including in government. So behavioral insights isn't so much an abstract endeavor, but rather about better understanding human behavior in order to design better and more effective public policy. That's right. And it's, uh, and it's very much using a number of the social sciences that previously weren't necessarily used um, so much, or at least not interwoven with a lot of the, um, a lot of the economic theory and, 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 other, and, and other sciences um, inside government thinking and inside uh, and inside public policy and that's what you're really seeing now is you're seeing a lot of the benefits from it. and there's a huge amounts of really um, valuable work that hasn't necessarily been capitalized maybe as much as economics has done and that is what you're seeing come to the fore now and in addition to that i would say that behavioral insights and the fact that you bring in these uh, sciences applied sciences what it brings is also a different approach to designing policies which is more experimental I mean, behavioral insights is very much associated to running tests and experiments and not assuming what people think or the way in which people behave, but rather finding out. So it's bringing in the inductive approach rather than the deductive approach. And this is a key contribution to the process of designing and delivering policy itself. And this is, again, is that uh, shift in the mindset that behavioral insights is also bringing in, not just as a sort of an end results, but also a new way of thinking the design and the delivery of policies. The OECD's work on behavioral insights grew out of work on regulatory reform. Um, what was the direct connection there? A lot of the work that, uh, that happens when thinking about regulatory reform or about regulatory policy or about regulatory interventions is ultimately about trying to change behavior. Uh, whether you're trying to control behavior or prevent behavior or encourage behavior, whether that's in terms of safety or uh, encouraging business growth or preventing accidents, whatever you're talking about, um, these different types of regulatory frameworks are there to try and manage people's or businesses or organizations' behavior. And it was really through looking at, well, how can this be improved even further? Because we know that so often, a lot of times when, uh, when governments or public institutions try and intervene and try and do something, they don't necessarily get the right kind of impact or the right outcome that they want. And it was really through in examining, well, what can we do or what can we use and what is out there that could help us hit the target a lot more, help governments hit the target a lot more, that really started... Uh, uh, I guess the work and and certainly my own personal um, interest in in well why should we be looking for new things and 
behavioral insights and behavioral economics came along at the perfect time and and uh, th as they say the rest is history <laughs> or future well maybe there was also a bit of a piece of history uh, i think we started and, and actually faisal led this work uh, within the within the uh, regulatory policy division the head uecd but also with the regulatory policy committee in the regulatory space uh, but i think and that was around 2013 2014 uh, but let's not forget that a few years before there had been a financial crisis uh, and that financial crisis actually had brought home uh, a big the fact that, you know, there behind that crisis, there was a regulatory crisis. And that regulatory crisis was actually in part linked to the fact that consumers, users, and sometimes those who were selling financial products didn't know either what they were getting into, buying it, or they didn't know what actually they were putting into, the, uh, into this product. And regulators sometimes didn't realize that actually information and the value of the information and the extent to which that information was salient and understood by consumers was extremely important to actually avoid a financial crisis. Uh, and in fact, we have seen some of the uh, applications of behavioral insights to public policy started and were more frequent in the financial sector, in part as a reaction to the realization that these behaviors or behavioral biases were not being taken fully into consideration when regulating certain sectors like the financial sector. I mean, just to illustrate more what Filippo had just said, um, many, uh, many governments, many regulators across the world, for instance, have regulations or guidance or laws even to say that the consumers or users should be provided with the right kind of information. Um, and they and that and that providers, um, whether they are financial institutions or, or or other types of institutions, they should all be providing the information um, in a way that is that is useful for 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 the consumers and for the users. But what nobody had really understood, um, and it was only until really the use of uh, of, of of behavioral insights, and and I think that um, the book by. Uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein on uh, called Nudge, um, which really started to make this a bit more of a uh, worldwide phenomenon, um, started to actually get through into the science of this notion of choice architecture and about the fact that, yes, you can provide people with information, but if that information is structured in a particular way, then it can have completely different effects compared to if it is if it is structured in, in another way and that's where you started to get things like the the uh, one of the first if you like public policy nudge interventions the uh, no before you owe um, act in the United States which uh, which started to make it quite explicit about it's not just the information that you're providing but how you provide it when you provide it that will also have a have could have a a serious impact in terms of whether or not that information is is used in the right way or actually used to the detriment of consumers and users so by starting with a soft touch and modifying the way information is presented certain policy goals can be achieved this would seem to contrast to more heavy-handed forms of intervention such as penalties and other techniques to achieve specific outcomes. To a certain extent, but again, here is where we maybe have some of the untapped uses of behavioral insights as of yet, because um, by people having fines or by people being, being sent to prison, um, that doesn't necessarily um, equate to people actually having the right behaviors 
or encouraging people to have the right behaviors. It's a very traditional approach that if you have sanctions, that people will immediately um, try and avoid those sanctions. You know, it goes back to, you know, homo economicus. Um, but what the sciences start to tell us that actually, if people feel as though they have been treated unfairly, so if there is a perception that they have been treated unfairly, they will take the financial consequences, they will take the fine, they will go to court, they will risk um, having further penalties. I mean, car parking tickets are a classic example of this, where people people think, or people who are, who are in the administration think that if they have the fines going high enough that, of course, people will stop parking there. Um, and that they won't necessarily try and go against the rules that are there and, and also they won't contest them. Well, actually, if it's administered in an unfair way, people will. Um, and this is what the social sciences tell us. Um, but this wasn't necessarily used um, and isn't still used, I think, as much as it potentially could be in designing the way that we govern ultimately or the way that things are managed. Yeah, absolutely. I think Fazal is touching upon a, an important point. So far, behavioral insights have been mostly uh, being applied at the level of individuals. Uh, when you know governments were trying to fix delivery of certain services, essentially a policy was out, was being rolling out, uh, and was being rolled out, and uh, you know there was a realization that results were not were not there, and therefore some kind of relatively quick fixes were were provided by behavioral insights. I guess the next stage is essentially avoiding fixing the policy once it is implemented, and rather making sure that these insights are taken into consideration when designing. Uh, that that policy insights on trust, uh, on on compliance, and how people comply. Typical case, you know, blood donations. Uh, if you pay people to donate blood, the rate of people who actually want to donate blood go, goes down. I think this is an important is an important insight, which means that you know financial incentives do not always work, uh, and this can be taken into consideration when actually designing a wide range of, of policies, incentives, uh, for example. How you design incentives, not just to donate blood, but for example, uh, for developing enterprises. Uh, the, the range of application, I think, is, is very wide. Uh, thinking really about the methodology, the approach, uh, and how these aspects can be taken into consideration early in the design of policymaking. In 2017, OECD published Behavioral Insights and Public Policy Lessons from Around the World. Among other things, the work published nearly 200 case studies of behavioral insights uh, at work around the world in policies and in a broad number of areas like consumer protection, education, energy, the environment, and financial products. Does this suggest that behavioral insights has been widely accepted as a tool for policymaking? Well, what we have now is we have over 200 um, instances of where behavioral insights has been institutionalized inside public policy. Um, and there's a variety of different ways that that has happened, uh, whether that's through a unit being set up, whether that's through um, a number of capacities being set up, uh, whether that's through some kind of long-term partnership arrangement with an outside provider or, or academic institution or not-for-profit not organization. There's a number of different ways um, that now behavioral insights has become widely accepted as a tool for policy making and it's supporting a number of other tools that are used in, in the policy making field as well. Um, yeah, that's right. I think it's, uh, it's probably evidence of the fact that it's becoming more and more uh, used and, and, and actually common uh, 
across across government. Probably the sort of the early start uh, heroic phase of behavioral insights is now uh, morphing into a more stable uh, application of behavioral insights. I think this is also probably the crucial time when where practitioners and policymakers are actually looking uh, for the next frontier in applying behavioral insights. Uh, what are the opportunities beyond, for example, nudging uh, for service delivery or better service delivery, uh, but also are looking for support uh, on, on how to mainstream behavioral insights uh, across government. Some have said that integrating psychology into policy is the equivalent of getting people to do things, perhaps against their will, an example of a kind of manipulation. How does the OECD address this criticism and what ethical guidelines are in place? Well, I think, I, think, I think the issue here is that, firstly, this issue around manipulation is, is something that I have trouble with. The reason why is because government intervenes or regulators intervene or public policy is there to intervene in people's lives on a daily basis. Now, the, if there is a criticism that this all of a sudden becomes manipulation because you're using cognitive psychology or you're using other types of social sciences... Um, well, I think that I think that that's unfair um, because other tools or other methodologies aren't necessarily um, have the same type of uh, type of criticism that maybe that maybe behavioral science does or behavioral insights does, and you can certainly see that they certainly aren't held up to the same standards in terms of quality, in terms of data, in terms of evidence. Um, but what certainly is happening, and I think that it's to the credit of the behavioral community across the world, that the standards that are being applied, uh, the academic standards that are being, are being applied, uh, the levels of transparency where what they are doing is being published, um, and overarching the, uh, the motto, if you like, that, that Richard Thaler uh, famously uh, continues to say, which is to nudge for good. Um, have definitely been some of the key components of uh, of why and uh, why behavioral insights is being applied in the appropriate manner uh, so far and why it, sh it should continue to in the future as well yeah no absolutely that's right i mean uh, in a sense one of the uh, one of the uh, key aspects of behavioral insights in the development and use within government has been also the fact that uh, governments have been partnering with research institutions and in fact research institutions from outside government were respected uh, academia i mean universities or or think tanks um, research bodies um, have actually well-established research protocols, which actually are benefiting also the application uh, within, within government. Certainly, there are concerns. Uh, some of the concerns which have been voiced is how can you apply a policy to a group of citizens and apply a different policy to another group of citizens. But in fact, I think it's less about applying it differently to citizens. It's actually running experiments, and experiments can be run in a control environment, which wouldn't have, which wouldn't create uh, those challenges for government. So I think in terms of ethical guidelines, uh, some are out there. They exist. They have been existing for a long time within academia, and actually they are being brought in into the work of government, which also brings also a certain level of, of rigor uh, in the application. Uh, plus, I think it's about thinking on how to apply testing uh, in, in, a, in, a, in an environment which is a government environment where, of course, there are obligations for fairness, equal treatment, etc. Uh, 
here at the OECD, uh, since this is a, definitely an issue which, is, which has come up, which is coming up, we are actually thinking of developing a behavioral insights policy toolkit and ethical framework, which would actually offer practitioners some of the answers or sometimes some of the questions they should ask themselves in terms of ethics when applying behavioral insights. Faisal, you have recently changed jobs, taking a position in the executive directorate of the OECD. Tell me about this change and how behavioral insights fits in. The change that I've, that I've had um, is from, if you like, applying behavioral insights uh, and helping governments from across the world applying behavioral insights to now beginning to implement it here inside the OECD itself. And, uh, and I guess what I'm trying to work on at the moment, and uh, I'm very lucky uh, that the executive director here, José Touchette, of the OECD is also very much um, of the same mindset, which is how do you start to apply behavioral insights and other kind of cutting edge techniques in how you run an organization? In how, how do you actually get it into the DNA of an organization um, and into the management and therefore affect the overarching organizational behavior? You know, from some very operational things, like for instance, cues. You know, we have lots of events that happen here at the OECD, and sometimes we have large amounts of queues. Um, but there's some very interesting things to learn about queues and about how to address those. Uh, there was a there was a very uh, there was a there was an excellent study done uh, done in Houston Airport, where uh, where they tried to reduce the number of uh, the amount of waiting time that there was for uh, for people um, when they got off the plane. They picked up their luggage and then they and then they were, then they exited. Well, they did really good. It was really fast. Um, from people leaving the plane to where they had to wait for their luggage. Then they had to wait, I think it was seven minutes for the, for the luggage, and then they were out um, by eight minutes, which is really quick, which is really good. However, people weren't satisfied. Uh, people were actually quite unhappy about that seven-minute wait. But what they actually learned using the behavioral sciences, if you like, or, or the cognitive sciences, is that what they learned from that uh, was that people feeling like they're waiting longer than they should is more the issue rather than the actual time that's taken. So what was the solution? Well, they simply moved the planes and people got off a bit, a bit further away from where the, actual, uh, where the actual luggage was and everyone was happy because now all of a sudden, in proportion, their walk along to the amount of time they had to wait for their luggage was absolutely fine. And it's those, it's those kind of operational, um, I guess, insights that now we're, we're beginning to look inside the OECD about how do you, how do you manage an organization and get that into, if you like, your overarching um, corporate services. So there's a number of different areas where we're, where we're looking and into our daily, daily lives inside an organization. I think this is actually encouraging to have Faisal sitting, sitting in the executive uh, directorate of the OECD. But it's also, I think, good to see that actually what we have been recommending and doing together with member states is also being applied at the organizational level uh, here at the OECD. Uh, I think this is also a trend, as Faisal was, was saying, applying behavior insights to organization that we see happening a little bit outside. But this is probably outside being, being within national governments, uh, OECD member and partners. But this is probably also an area for further applications and for 
almost the next frontier for behavioral insights. How you apply to organization so that you avoid, uh, for example, the next deep water horizon. And this is a bit what we are trying to do at the OECD. We will be running some work on safety and creating a safety culture in the hydrocarbon sector, awareness raising, share responsibility, leadership within regulated entities that you avoid so that you avoid you know, the next disaster like the Deepwater Horizon. And there was evidence that for the Deepwater Horizon, there were serious lapses in the culture of safety within these organizations. The other area where we are applying behavioral insights together with, with member states, so we are supporting the application better of behavioral insights uh, um, in OECD members, is really applying it in the early design of, uh, of policies and, regu and regulation, and we, we are doing work with Scotland, uh, the Water Industry Commission for Scotland, which is now in the process of setting charges for water, and they are actually using, and they would like to use behavioral insights to understand the true preferences of consumers so that they can be reflected in, uh, in, in the charges for water, but also in the way in which the company invests uh, to maintain the infrastructure. Uh, and this is a bit the next frontier uh, of applying behavioral insights, and I think the OECD uh, is uh, is trying to support uh, as many countries as possible to explore this new this new opportunity, and also building on on you know internal work where we are testing actually on ourselves some of these applications. The OECD is sponsoring a large event in Cape Town, South Africa, called "Making a Real Difference: Nudging for Policy Change" from September 27th to September 28th. Tell me about this event. This is a bit actually making sense of what we have been talking into uh, into the uh, into this podcast and almost making it happen, making it real. Uh, first day, we will be discussing actually application of behavioral insights to complex policy problems, uh, education, health, public safety, uh, sustainability, uh, bringing in the experience of national government, but also subnational local governments, provinces, states cities across the world to actually discuss and explore the next frontier. And the second day will be really focused on mainstreaming behavioral insights into government. Again, what does it take for analysts, policymakers, decision makers to apply behavioral insights? And there we will be presenting the draft policy toolkit we have been developing uh, together with the well-respected expert practitioner, Pelle Hansen uh, from INAJU, the European Nudge Network, and Roskilde University to provide the kind of guidance that practitioners are looking for tomorrow. Thank you, Faisal Naru and Filippo Cavasini. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. For more on behavioral insights work at the OECD, go to oe.cd slash behavioral dash insights. That's oe.cd slash behavioral dash insights. And don't forget to put the letter U in behavioral. This is OECD on the level. Thanks for listening.